Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Is it possible to score 50 goals in a season and follow that up with a 60-goal season in the National Hockey League and play in relative obscurity? Is it possible to be one of the best goal scorers in the league and continually lead your team in scoring every year and not be known? Well, if you played for the California Golden Seals and the Cleveland Barons and later played for the Washington Capitals when they were continually one of the worst teams in the league? Yes, it's possible. Today, we'll visit with the man who lived that NHL life, Dennis Murrow. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello once again, and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, and today's something special. Most of the folks we talk about have long since passed on, but every once in a while, there's someone who's still kicking. Someone who had a great career, but is not remembered like he should be. And today, not only are we going to talk about Dennis Marook, Today, we're going to speak with Dennis, so I'm very excited about today's podcast and hope you are too. First, though, I want to let you know that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Audible is a great way to enjoy your favorite audiobooks, especially when you're on the run. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. You get a free Audible book and a 30-day free trial. I'd also like to thank Henry, Jack, and Paul for their continued support. If you'd like to contribute to Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash sportsfh. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash sportsfh. Check out our website, sportsfh.com, where you can find out more on how to show your support, link back to previous podcasts, learn more about our guests, and see who else is scheduled. Follow us on Twitter, at sportsfheroes, and look for our page on Facebook. Now, Dennis Marook. His career was, let's see, how to put this, quite interesting. You know, sometimes, no matter the sport, players meet with some bad luck when it comes to the teams they play for. In baseball, the great Ernie Banks never made it to the postseason, but he's not the only one. In hoops, the great Patrick Ewing, while he made the playoffs, never won a championship. Neither did Carl Malone or John Stockton. In football, Barry Sanders made the playoffs, but he never won a championship. Sometimes you just get selected by a team or traded to a team that isn't, well, they're not very good. Now, imagine something even worse than that. 
playing for a team that folds up and moves. Not only did Dennis Marook play in front of thousands of empty seats as a member of the California Golden Seals, he moved with the team to Cleveland where, as a member of the Barons, not only did he play in front of even more empty seats, there were times when payroll couldn't be made. Imagine that, playing one of the four major sports and your team can't make payroll. Not only did that happen, Dennis had the misfortune of playing for a third team that didn't make it at all, the Minnesota North Stars. They actually moved to Dallas to become the Dallas Stars. All the while, though, Dennis did what he was supposed to do on the ice, and that's score goals. In fact, he was one of the best goal scorers in the NHL, yet playing for teams such as the Seals, the Barons, the North Stars, and for a while, the Washington Capitals, Dennis played in relative obscurity, and that certainly affected his popularity. I mean, how else can you explain the fact that a guy can score 60 goals in one season and not be remembered? It's pretty hard to do. Well, Today on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Dennis Marook, who just released his book, Dennis Marook, The Unforgettable Story of Hockey's Forgotten 60-Goal Man, is here to talk about his great career. Dennis, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could be here. Uh, glad to be here, and uh, good morning. So, so let's start here. Phil Esposito, Guy Lafleur. Reggie Leach, Steve Shutt, Mike Bossy, Wayne Gretzky, and then you, Dennis Marook, the seventh man in the history of the NHL to score 60 goals in one year. What does it mean to you to be included in such an exclusive group, which of course has grown over the last several years? Well, you know, uh, I think everybody's maybe surprised that my name's uh, in with those guys. I don't know. Uh, this little kid from... Uh, Rexdale, Ontario, uh, uh, was always told he was too small to play in the National Hockey League. And I think, uh, you know, having a 50-goal season there in Washington just before the 60, uh, and then being involved with that uh, group uh, and the names you just listed, uh, it's an honor, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, I've done a bunch of different events and golf tournaments and that, and and some of my friends have put on a big, uh, big board. And when I'm on a, a part three hole, you know, beat the beat the pro me and uh, and the golf, and and they had the list of the top ten scores in that in that year, the eighty one eighty two, when I had sixty goals. And and you look at those names up there, you know, Gretzky, Metzier, uh, Bossy, Tasny, and then me, and then below me was uh, Marcel Dion, uh, Curry, Coffee. Bobby Smith, you know, so, so you go on and on. So it, it's just an honor to be, uh, you know, of course, to play in the NHL, but to be in that elite group, uh, it's very special. That's awesome. You know, 60 goals in one year is truly a magical number, similar to 50 home runs a year in baseball. The crazy thing about 60 Espo had 76 one year, and then nobody sniffed coming close to him. And then all of a sudden, a couple of guys get, you know, 60. And the year that you got 60 goals, Wayne Gretzky obliterated that mark with 92. I mean, he was just in another world. Did that at all diminish your accomplishment that year? Well, I think, I think, yeah, you might have to look at it that way a little bit. Uh, uh, that was a phenomenal year that, uh, that he, I mean, he was a great player. There's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, you know, he had a great supporting cast. Look at the players that he played in that team with them. Mark Metzi, Glenn Anderson, uh, Yari Curry, uh, 
you go down the list of players on that team, and then you look at our team and the Washington Capitals. Uh, you look down the list of players in our team. No comparison. I'm not knocking the guys in our team at all, but uh, the talent he had there compared to the, the talent we had to work with in Washington was nowhere near close. But, you know, we got to the playoffs that year, and it was just a uh, – it was great for the first time for the get Capitals in the playoffs, and sure. of course we ended up going against the Islanders and didn't uh, didn't uh, do so well because they had a great team sure. as well. But uh, you know, to be uh, you know what, what Gretzky did, and and, and that seriously that year that I had sixty, uh, you know, I I think I probably could have had that things went uh, went in the net for me probably close seventy five eighty goals. Wow, what a what what a phenomenal year! And as you had just noted you scored 50 the year before so you had 110 goals in a two-year stretch it's it's amazing you also had some pretty good line mates in ryan walter and mike gartner tell me about the chemistry that you guys had you know i didn't play a lot with mike gartner um he played in another line and uh my line mates that year and we pretty much stayed together uh mike gartner is a great uh, phenomenal hockey player and he played what 20 plus years and uh he can still play today. He's in so great a shape, and I've skated with him. Uh, just a great man. Um, uh, Ryan Walter was the left wing, and Chris Ballantyne was my right wing. A lot of people don't remember. When I do a trivia, uh, who, who are my line mates, and they never, hardly anybody gets Chris. And uh, I always got to say, uh, well, his first name's Chris, but there's a special, nobody gets it. Uh, and then uh, they keep bringing up Mike Gartner and that, and I said, no, Mike's his first name is Mike, not Chris. And then I always have to say, well, there's a special day in February. And, oh, Valentine, oh Chris Valentine, oh, you know. So that's how that goes. We were we were aligned. You know, look at Bossy, Trache, and Gillies. We were aligned. Brian Murray, the coach, uh, great man, uh, rest in peace, uh, Mr. Murray, uh, he gave me an opportunity to do a lot of things in my game, but – also, our line, Ryan Walter was a great up-and-down left winger, strong. Uh, Chris and I were more the, the playmakers, uh, you know, set up things and, and make some goals. But, uh, you know, Ryan had one of his better years, and, and so did Chris. And, uh, you know, I compliment uh, Mr. Murray uh, keeping us together, even though we went through some games where, uh, you know, five, six games or so, we didn't get many goals. And he just kept – he knew that we, we were a good line, I didn't want to disrupt us. Uh, we play together on the power play together. A lot of times in a power play unit, you have different guys from different lines. But our lines stay together, and I think that just made it, made it work for us in all the games. Let's go back to the beginning a little here. You know, scoring 50 goals <laughs> and, and 60 goals is not an easy chore. And the beginning for you was many years earlier with the Toronto Marlies. I guess that's where you got your first taste of what it could be like to play as a professional. You loved playing for the Marlies, but you were traded away to London. And this is when you were just 16 years old. So first, for our listeners, tell us who the Marlies are and why it's so important and such an honor to play for them, especially if you're from the Toronto area. Okay, great. Um, yes, in uh, in uh, I started out playing house league in Rexdale, and uh, I, I I was a leading scorer in house league, and that just carried over. And and then in uh, minor Bantam Bantam, 
uh, played for the Toronto Marlies and uh, Marbles. And then uh, Markham Maxers was the next level junior B, and still was the Marley chain. And then growing up in Toronto, the Toronto Mar and to this date, they are the top uh, youth hockey players in the Toronto area. There are other players that are good, but they're selected. Most of those players around the cities here are selected to go play for the Marlins. Everybody, every child, every parent would love to see their child play. There's only 20 kids can play on a team, so not everybody can play there. So I had the fortunate uh, situation there where when I was playing for them, um, I was able to get uh, equipment. My parents didn't have to pay for equipment, uh, sticks, and use skates, but still with skates that uh, we didn't have to buy. So it was really uh, beneficial to play there. But, you know, Sunday, the Junior Mar junior Marlies were playing at Maple Leaf Gardens at 2 o'clock, and every Toronto boy wanted to play for the Toronto Marlies. Well, uh, you know, the day that, that I thought I, I had played eight games uh, as a 15-year-old with the Marlies and, and – uh, I was playing lacrosse in the summer, and I'll just tell you the story if it's okay. Sure. Um, I was playing a goalie in lacrosse, and, and uh, Frank Vanella, the, the, uh, the GM of the Marlies, called and asked to, to meet. And I said, sure. Uh, I got a lacrosse game. We'll meet uh, in a gas station or somewhere on the way. He said, sure. Uh, so Mom and I got in the car, and I got half my goalie equipment on and, and uh, met him at a gas station. And I got in my car, went in his car, and he looked at me, and he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. He, and I thought it was to sign a contract to play for the Junior A Marlies. And uh, he said, we traded to the London Knights. And I just broke out crying. And I and I just told him, I said, uh, I quit. And uh, I'm not playing. I'm not leaving Toronto. I'll play somewhere in Toronto. Uh, I did not want to leave uh, my friends and family. And uh, and that's what happened. So the, the coach at that time was Bill Long. And he had come down many numerous times to Toronto to talk to me. And I just, I go, I, as soon as he come in, I go, go talk to my parents. They know the story, and I just leave. Um, and then uh, my, my older sister and I met, uh, talked about it, and nothing. He did, wouldn't make another trade. He wanted me, and there was another player, Larry Goodenough and Steve Langdon, were going too. And uh, two weeks before, I just said, okay, I'll go. If I like it, I'll stay. If I don't, then I'll just come back home. And I ended up staying, had three wonderful years there in, in London, great fans, great people. And uh, that's where it all happened. Uh, most valuable player, rookie of the year, uh, and uh, ended up getting drafted by California Golden Seal. So I owe a lot to Bill Long and the London Knights, but, you know, still a Toronto boy. I always wanted to play for the Marlies. <laughs> that's a great story. Um, you know, ultimately, like you said, you were drafted by the California Golden Seals, and you had quite a rookie season, 30 goals, 32 assists. Uh, you set an NHL record for rookies with five shorthanded goals. You had a great year. But to make it in the NHL, you had to change a little. And as you wrote in your book, you said you needed to become, and I quote, a prick. Who told you that, and, and what was the theory behind it? Well, um, you know, I was feisty little player, but, I mean, I was more offensive-minded and stuff like that. And, and I met with Dave Hutchison, and he's in the book. And, as a matter of fact, I was with Dave uh, two nights ago, and uh, he asked how the book was going. I said, it's doing great. And uh, he said, that's awesome. And we met, and he had already played in the NHL year, and uh, he lives just outside London. And, of course, I was playing for the Knights. And, and I said, what does it got to take? And he says, you know what, you can score. 
you can make plays and you can hit, but you got to be kind of a little bit of a, uh, a prick type player <laughs> and you know, hit the top players when you got a chance. You know, when you go to a training camp, you got to hit your own players. You got to show them that you want to be there. And, and, and I, I just started, it just kept going doing that. And, you know, it's funny that uh, Mr. Gretzky, uh, one time at a faceoff, he says, you know, Dennis, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to hit or be aggressive and just go play your game and score goals and make plays. And I said to him, I looked at him and I go, well, are you going to start fighting now? And, and, and so it's kind of like, uh, you know, I wasn't going to change my game. Of course, he was never going to change his. You know, he's just so phenomenal <laughs> hockey player. And, and I just kept going. And that's, uh, and that's what it was. And, and uh, it gave me a lot of room. Uh, in our time when I played, it was survival. So you had to give it back. If you, uh, you know, they would just keep giving it to you. And if you didn't give it back, then, uh, then you're going to be sore every game. So I, I, I created, a, I guess, respect for the game and respect for me as a player that I didn't back down. Yeah, it, it was a different game back then. And, and I got to yeah. ask you this, the stash, the Fu Manchu. Very few players can be identified with such a trademark. In fact, the only other guy I can think of who can be identified through a mustache like that is Lanny McDonald. Why the stash? Right. Tell me tell me about it. Was that part of the persona that you were trying to create? Well, I had I had that uh, kind of a, not similar, but I had a stash in junior. As a matter of fact, I had uh, some hair when I was 14, a mustache when I was 14 years old. <laughs> So, you know, um, no, it was kind of a, I kind of grew it, grew a beard and all that. And I kind of like said, well, you know, that that's kind of neat. People liked it. And, but I was watching TV one night in a baseball game and, and there was a guy in a uh, relief pitcher for the Kansas City Royals. And he was the mad, Al Habrowski, I believe. Al Habrowski, the he mad was, Hungarian. He, mad Hungarian. I'm Ukrainian. And I said, you know, and he had the Fu Man uh, too, and he would go nuts on the mound, you know. I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have that Fu Manchu, and, and that's what I'm going to relate it to. And that's exactly what, what it was. And, uh, and I just I kept it. I, uh, I have a goatee now, but I don't have a Fu. But uh, I do it sometimes from, for Movember and, and stuff like that. But uh, pretty much keep the goatee. Girlfriend likes the goatee, so she doesn't like the beard. So I guess I got better keep the goatee. But, uh, you know, it, it was just it's a trademark. And, uh, you know, the Fu Manchu will always be uh, with uh, Dennis Murr. Interesting. You know, uh, going back to your rookie year with the Seals, I would think that the numbers you put up in your rookie season would normally be good enough to win the Calder. But your rookie year was the same year that Brian Trottier broke in, and he scored 32 (laughs) goals to go along with 63 assists for the New York Islanders. I'd like to think that maybe if you had broken in the year before, the year after Trottier, you would have won. Have you ever given any thought to that? Um, yeah, I have. I've, as a matter of fact, after our first year, I, I had a hockey school with Brian, as a matter of fact, out in uh, Brentwood, Brentwood College out in uh, Victoria, B.C. And uh, we became friends uh, right right from then. And, you know, he, he, he's an unbelievable. That was a great, great, uh, great start for him. And, you know, I'm playing with a team, a, a weak team in California, not a lot of exposure um, right. compared to uh, the Islanders where Brian got and you know, that, that has nothing to do against his, his talent. Yeah, he was a phenomenal. He's won every award except the Grammy. And, and just uh, <laughs> I was with him the other night as well, and we talked a little bit about the, uh, 
the hockey school and you know, become friends over the years and just a great great man a great ambassador of the game and you know it just uh it, it was well deserving for him but it's great to be involved and be up with the players like that and and being recognized i did i get the recognition that maybe i should have got maybe i should have got more uh for what happened but uh you know, he certainly was well-deserving of the, of the award. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure he had more points and stuff like that with me and a, a good hockey team, but a lot more exposure uh, with his team. So I think that might have been the weak, the weak link about being out in California. And, yes, if I happened the year before, might have happened or the year after. You know, basically, I wanted to play in the National Hockey League. It didn't matter which team I got to. Uh, and uh, I was able to show them. Uh, even when I got drafted and went and met with the GM and the president, uh, they told me I was going to the minors for two years. And, uh, and my, my agent, Boom Boom Jeffrey, said, no, my Denny, he scored you a lot of goals. He played no junior. <laughs> he played no minor. He, he played in a big team. And they said, no, he's going to the minors. And first exhibition game, I played against Marcel Dion and uh, had a couple goals. And they tapped me on the shoulder after the game and said, no, you call Boom Boom. We're going to sign a contract. You're not playing in <laughs> So, you know, I had to prove. I had to prove myself and all that. So, you know, that's where it all started. And, and uh, was, uh, so I, have, I owe a lot to the California Golden Seals to draft me, yes. What was it like playing for them? Sure, it was the NHL, but was it what you yeah. expected? I mean, you know, <laughs> it, 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 they didn't have big crowds. Uh, the no. game didn't catch on. I mean, it's a big game out there now with the San Jose Sharks. But back then, the California Golden Seals... It's like they just couldn't they couldn't catch on. What was it like? Uh, as I say, and some people say, who? The California Golden Seal, who are they, you know? Or Cleveland Barons, who are they? Who are they? Are they, did they play in the NHL? You know, so that's kind of what I went through uh, during that time. And um, as I said, it, it was great to be in the NHL. And yes, um, we weren't a real strong team. We lost a lot of close games. We had some good players. But uh, what, what was it like? Well, I was 19, I was 20 years old, and I had a, I, I bought a 73 Corvette and sunshine and, and driving on the Nimitz to, uh, to Oakland to practice or, uh, or Berkeley or whatever. And got to go to San Jose, got to go to San Francisco. I was having a great time, but, uh, the game, uh, was a little different there. Our team was not real strong. Uh, of course there was a lot of partying, a lot going on. And when I first broke in and I kind of went, was this really the NHL? And, and you know, <laughs> second day, we couldn't get to the bar fast enough the second day of training camp. And and it was like, wait a minute here. And, and, and I was kind of like really puzzled. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of like had to try and take care of myself, even though I had fun and because I wanted to stay in the league and I didn't want to, to uh, give it away to anybody else. And so that's what, the difference was that uh, my first four or five years were not real strong uh, with the team. Uh, you know, we were, we were weak, but, you know, I had to go do the numbers. I, I knew that if maybe somewhere along the line, a, a strong team, a good team, a chance to play in the Stanley Cup would, would select me or trade for me or whatever. And, and that's how I was always in the back of my mind. It never happened, but, uh, uh, you know, I was proud to play with a lot of great hockey players and proud to play against a lot of great hockey players. Sure. You know, the Seals struggled at the gate, and that sort of meant financial difficulties. In fact, right. in your book, you you refer to the story where they sort of reneged on a bonus that Boom Boom yeah. had apparently negotiated for you. Could you tell me about the clause in your rookie contract for a bonus that you never received? You know, I've never really even looked at the team my contract, and... um 
uh, I just left it with the, the agents and that. Uh, and, and, and I think what happened, either it got misfiled or misplaced or whatever. And I thought, and, and, and I recall that we had an agreement if I had scored 30 goals, uh, it was a $15,000 bonus. Well, I never, never received it. And I talked to the team, never got it. We moved the team to Cleveland, new ownership, all that kind of stuff. And, and so I, I, I tried to find out what I could do. And I contacted Mr. Alan Eagleson, who was the, uh, uh who was the uh, NHL, uh, LPA uh, and the commissioner and all that. And he just said that, uh, you know, not, if they got no record of it, there's nothing we can do. And so mm. I was disappointed with my agent, agent group and I ended up, uh, latching on with Mr. Eagleson and he became my agent for the, uh, the, th- the rest of the 13 years that I played in the NHL. So there was something good that uh, did come out of it. Hey, how odd? Yeah, uh, yeah. took care of my contract. Yes, go ahead. How odd was it finishing your rookie year with California and not knowing where your team is going to play the following year? And was it disappointing to know ultimately that you were going to be playing in Cleveland? Well, you know, we, you know, after we really didn't know as players, we were, they were trying to build the, a new rink in San Francisco. There was a, uh, Mel Swig, the owner of the Swig family, were going to put a, a mall on one side. The BART was going to go right between the mall and the rink on the other side. And the mayor Moscone, who, uh, at that time, they voted against it, um, to, in San Francisco voted against it. So they decided to move it and they moved it to Cleveland. Whereas players, you know, we don't know much about Cleveland, and uh, there was a, a, World Hockey, a World Hockey team going in there. There's been a minor team, uh, Cleveland Crusaders, so we knew very little about Cleveland. Uh, and so we had to go there. We had a beautiful big arena that uh, nobody came to watch. The Richfield and, uh, Coliseum. It was, yeah, it was kind of a, a ghost arena. It seats uh, about 21,000 in nowhere. It was like the Wizard of Oz, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was in nowhere. And all of a sudden, there's this massive uh, building and uh, out in the farm line, you know. And uh, and so we did get a lot of support from there and probably because of where it was. And and then uh, at one time, we, we did not receive our paychecks. I think we didn't get paid for a month or whatever. And uh, so it was really a struggle there as players, knowing not knowing what to do. And, and we had a... Uh, you know, they, they told us that we were going to fold. And um, uh, one day, Buffalo was, we were playing Buffalo night, and they were, they were in town, of course. In the morning skate, they said, well, you might as well go say goodbye to your teammates because we're either going to put you in a dispersal draft or whatever. Ugh. Guy's going to go to different team, teams and because uh, we had no insurance. Well, Ugh. Alan Nicholson called, I think it was like 4.30 or something, said, well, the league's going to take care of the insurance. We weren't going to play if we didn't have insurance. And uh, uh, players, so that they knew that, and and so uh, uh, we had to go play the games. And uh, there's a lot of guys that we uh, we had a little tipsy playing the game, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> we ended up losing, and ended up getting getting our money, getting our money, and and then of course Cleveland and Minnesota merged. So there I am going through another situation uh, with uh, you know not knowing my future again. Uh, you know, two teams together, and I was told by Lou Nanny that. He wanted to keep his centerman there and that he was going to trade me for a first round pick. And I says, okay, just uh, do it in the summer so I can move to wherever city. And, and you know what, it's in the book too. And, and uh, nothing happened. And I called my agent and he said, yeah, there's a couple teams there. Nothing's been done yet. So just be careful. 
and, he, and Lou Nanny calls me and he goes, oh, I can't make a trade for you. Uh, we want you to come play for the Minnesota North Stars. Come to Minnesota. You're, you'll love the fans here and you're, you'll, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I called my agent and he said, no, 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 no. If you're going to go there, just go rent a house. Of course, I got traded. Like I didn't even dress. I dressed the first game at one shift. Harry Howell was the coach. I have to ask him after the game. He said, "Well, something's up, and we couldn't really play." And the second game, uh, that's when it, when it all happened. Uh, I was traded to the Washington Capitals for first round pick and said my goodbyes. So after playing just one season with the Seals, Dennis packed up with the rest of the team and headed to Cleveland, where he played for the Barons during their two years of existence. In his first year there, he scored 28 goals and added 50 assists. In his second year with Cleveland, the Barons last year, he scored 36 goals to go along with 35 assists. Why the NHL thought it could make it in Cleveland is a huge question. The Barons played in the Richfield Coliseum, which was basically located in no man's land, and it sat around 20,000 people. In the four years previous to the Barons moving, the Cleveland Crusaders of the World Hockey Association, the WHA, called the Coliseum home, and they couldn't attract any fans either. In fact, in their four years in Cleveland, the Crusaders averaged just 6,196 fans per game. So why the NHL thought relocating the Seals to Cleveland would make sense is anyone's guess. In fact, the Barons only drew 5,935 fans a game. What a disaster. For Dennis, though, amazingly, things were starting to get better. Before we get there, though, just want to remind you that today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. And for listeners of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we have a terrific offer for you. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Over 180,000 titles available from history to fiction to sports and more. Give Audible a try. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh for your free audiobook. If you're like me and you're running through airports, sitting on planes, racing from location to location, and you just can't find the time to sit down and read, and you don't like lugging around a heavy book, Audible is great. Give it a try. It's free. So, how were things going to get better for Dennis? Well, it started with a merger of two teams, the Barons and the Minnesota North Stars, and then a trade, long in coming, to a team that was experiencing difficulties of its own, but, like Dennis, was about to experience stability, the Washington Capitals. You go from the Seals to the Barons. The Barons have financial difficulties. They play in the Richfield Coliseum. It's out in the middle of no place. There's hardly anybody comes out to watch the games. Uh, You you referred to the time where you didn't know if you were going to be paid or not. Ultimately, the Barons have to merge with the Minnesota North Stars. You go up to Minnesota. Lunani says he wants you. They have Bobby Smith there. Um, they don't play you. They ultimately trade you to the Washington Capitals. And the day that you were traded, your wife showed up. Joni, that was not a, uh, a, 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 a the most ideal of situations. Tell us what happened there. They, 
they her her uh, Tony and her sister uh, drove our cars um, from Cleveland to Minnesota, and uh, uh, they arrived. As a matter of fact, we had a game that night, and uh, I was being picked up by uh, J.P. Parise and uh, and uh, Brad, Ma- uh, Brad Maxwell, and uh, uh, they were picking me up at five o'clock. I got the news that I was traded from Max McNabb at 20 to 5. <laughs> I was had my suit on, ready to go, because being picked up. Joni arrived at quarter to 5. This is all <laughs> minutes. And I told her, I says, well, I just got traded. She said, what? What's going on here? Uh, and and uh, she knew a little bit that, you know, things were kind of unsettled and but she didn't, you know, when we were told they'd come to Minnesota and enjoy everything, that was going to be cool, you know. So she was pretty excited about that. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, J.P. Parise, Max Manab was great. The Washington Capitals were great. They they came in and took care of the cars. They flew Joni. I flew her sister back uh, to Ohio. Uh, uh, Joni flew Joni to uh, when she got all settled and everything, flew her to uh, Washington. And I had to leave right away. I leave the next day. Um, so it was like that. And so go say my goodbyes to the, the North star guys who I had training camp with and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was on the way and uh, off to Washington and get, it got settled there. Yeah. You know, some players have all the luck and other players, well, they just don't have much luck. You move on to the <laughs> Capitals after having played for California, Cleveland and Minnesota. And not only are the Capitals not a good team, but at one point right. during your time there, there was a shot they were going to move too. What was it with you it and the teams full... that were on the move? That's exactly right. We we had to save the Caps campaign uh, there in Washington. The late A. Paul and the owner and uh, Dick Patrick and all of them were involved, and things just weren't weren't going good fan wise. And all of a sudden, they got some more fan support, and then they ended up. You know, of course, uh, holding on and, and then uh, getting a new owner. And, you know, that was, as I said earlier, you know, in the first five years of my career was very, uh, you know, frustrating, uh, unsettling and family-wise, everything and not knowing where you're going to live, where you're going to go. And, and and I said, is this really the NHL? Is this what it's, it's all about? And, and, yeah, and you just said it, you know. Uh, I just wasn't a lucky guy. I had uh, things against me and. And, uh, and it, and those things, those bad things kind of carried to me after when I, when I was done playing, but, you know, I ended up, you know, continuing on. I got traded back to Minnesota and Lou Nanny always said that he just loaned me out for five years because right. he got a lot of, a lot of rip from P fans and all that because I was getting a 50, 60 goal season. And that would have been great for the North stars doing that there, helping them out. But, uh, I ended up getting back there and playing six years and, uh, things worked out well. You know, one theme you referred to often in the book was the fact that no matter how many goals you scored, no matter how well you did on the ice, it wasn't satisfying because the teams you played for didn't make the playoffs. Ultimately, you did make the playoffs. But what was it like all those years before you before you got a taste of postseason play? Tell me about the disappointment. Well, definitely disappointed. Any player that's played in the NHL that doesn't make the playoffs is very disappointed um, uh, because our, our goal is to play in the playoffs and, play, and and try and have a chance to win the Stanley Cup. 
And, you know, it was frustrating. The only positive side that I can look at all that kind of stuff, I had some pretty good years. And so I got selected to play in the World Championships with right. Team Canada. Right. So I got to play internationally. got some great, great international hockey players, Tretjak, all those Russians, the Czechs, and Swedes and Finns. You know, they had their best players. And so I got... We didn't have our best players, but we had players that were didn't make the playoffs that they selected the best players and got to go over there. So I have to look at that. I want a bronze medal, and, uh, and I look at that as being my Stanley Cup or my playoffs because I was able to continue on playing in April, and and so and I got to see some pretty neat neat cities and countries around the world. So uh, I have to look at that as a positive side there, but. Yes, and then and then finally, eventually, getting into the playoffs in '81 with the uh, with the Capitals, and uh, you know that was uh, great for the town, and uh, everybody's so excited, and and of course the you know that great trade that uh, Washington and Montreal made changed the whole outlook of the Washington Capitals, right. and they traded Ryan Walter and Rick Green for uh, Rod Langway, Brian Inglum, uh, Doug Jarvis, and Craig Locke, and that changed the whole outlook of our team and. You know, Bobby Carpenter, we had Gardner. We had, we had a strong, we had a strong team, and just wasn't enough. But uh, that changed everything. And now look at Washington; they've exploded and um, got some good draft picks and great players, and just continuing on, which is which is great to see. Yeah, um, you know, going back to your international play, I'm telling you, uh, uh, to you who are listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes, you got to get this book. Dennis has some great stories about some. Interesting things that happened overseas and the great players that he did get to play against. Hey, you scored 50 goals in the 80-81 season and followed that with the magical 60 in the 81-82 season. First, when you look back at those two years now, do you feel satisfaction today? And second, how did the game differ back then? What was it about the game then that allowed for more guys to score 60 goals in a year than they do today? Well, I, I think the satisfaction I have, first of all, is to make it to the NHL. Um, I had so many negative things against me. I, I, I was I was, I was a good scorer in junior and all that, and, and I thought I had the opportunity, and, and I thought I was going to get drafted at, at the first round or whatever, but I was too small. That's, that's the whole mark I had, and I wasn't strong enough, all that kind of stuff. But I made it. I scored my first NHL goal. In, in Maple Leaf Gardens, my parents, my family, and brothers and sisters and friends were all there. Uh, so that was a thrill. And then, you know, a great when we scored the 50 goals. And uh, I got my first All-Star game in 78 in uh, in Buffalo when I was playing for the Barons and playing with LaFleur, Schott, uh, Trache, all those wow. great Siddler, all those great hockey players. And here's this kid from Rexdale, Ontario. Uh, playing and in, in the, in the, sitting in the same dress room, being coached by Scotty Bowman. You know, it's just those are highlights. Those are things you'll never forget. And then uh, the year I scored 60, uh, we had the, that was the All Star game was right in Washington. Uh, so I was the last one uh, um, announced and in, introduced. And I think uh, I, I mean I pretty pretty I get goosebumps now thinking about it because of how the, the ovation I got right. from the the home crowd. Uh, was louder than uh, Gretzky's was, and uh, you know, so it was. It was just those things, and I got to have lunch at the White House. Uh, we all did the whole team uh, uh, with meet President Reagan, and my parents came down for the whole week, and just 
all those things you look back to are, are very unique. But the main thing is, is not having the opportunity to win a Stanley Cup. Uh, I think that's uh, that was uh, one thing a hockey player will always have in the mind that the players that did not uh, have be be uh, lucky enough or uh, have the opportunity to play in a team that you have to have the right players to, to win the Stanley Cup. And, and uh, you know, I'll go, I'll keep playing. I still play now, and I always think about, oh, and I watch the Stanley Cup. Wouldn't that be great to be a part of that sure. team and to win that, you know, that, that whole thing. But, you know, that's, you know, that's, like, you know, I don't lose any sleep over it. It's just, uh, you know, it's just the way it is. And, and the book is, the book is, uh, I wrote the book with Ken Reed, the uh, co-author. It's a different book. It's a, uh, if you read James Patterson books, all short chapters, he's my favorite author. I read all his books. And the book, as you know, it's short chapters, easy to read, and you want to keep going on after each chapter. And that's how I presented the book. I didn't want to have a first chapter. I started out playing hockey at eight years old. This this book is a. Uh, I've heard a lot of great comments from people. There's 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 good things in it. There's bad things. There's uh, personal things that I I really had a hard time getting out and saying. But I, I think it was very important for me to get it out to let people know what my life was like, how the ups and downs I had, and 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 nearly uh, nearly uh, ended my life. Uh, due to the fact of not having a, a good post career. Uh, right, and we're, go, we're, we're going to get to that in just a moment. I, I do have a couple other questions yeah. I want to ask you about your career, yeah. though. Um, okay. The big trade that the Capitals made with Montreal, you had just come off your 60-goal season, and like you said, they bring in Langway and Engblom and, right. and, and Dougie Jarvis. Um, how difficult was it for you, having come off a season where you score 60 goals, you're the team's top-line center, and you get moved? You get moved to left wing. <laughs> uh, can you explain how difficult a move that is, particularly after having played center for so many years? For our listeners, please explain the differences between playing left wing and center. Well, the, the it is a, a center is probably the toughest position um, to play in the game because you're you're doing all things uh, offensively, defensively. You're helping your defenseman out to get the puck in the corners, uh, defense, and then you're helping your wingers get it out, make plays, uh, face-offs, all that. So you pretty much got a you know that's a where left wing you're pretty much up and down. The wingers you're up and down, you're doing your job and that. All I did was during that time I was asked to play left wing. Um, and I think pretty much played with Dougie Jarvis and Kenny Houston most of the time, but, uh, uh, Kenny Houston was on the right side. Um, Bobby Carpenter was with us, um, the great hockey player, young, and he had to play a lot at center. And so myself and Bobby, uh, to play a lot, uh, was, uh, I think it was to strengthen our team, even though I could produce, I didn't know how well I was going to be able to play it. And I think it was kind of interesting, but going by, uh, the all-star, the, uh, I was listed as centerman, but I really played left wing, and I had most goals as a left winger of all the league wow. when they start uh, uh, voting for uh, for left wingers. I wasn't listed as a left winger, but I was I was a left winger and had the most most goals, most points as a left winger. So I thought, well, maybe I get an all-star game as left winger. Well, no choice, you know. So. <laughs> And, uh, and so it is a different position, and you 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 really work with your centerman, your other other winger, but uh, you just got to find yourself, get yourself in the right holes, do your job. You're 
you know, offensively go in and fight for the puck in the corners or watch your point man in your own zone and make sure that you get the puck out past the blue line or to your man. And it's just a different position you got to learn. And, and I try to just watch other players on the other teams, the left wingers, and what they did and, and, and try to compliment them and try to see if I could do that. And, and, it, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Interesting. Um, shortly thereafter, you do get traded back to the Minnesota North right. Stars. As you said, Lou Nanny right. goes back out and gets you back there. But it was weird because here you're still averaging yeah. close to a point a game, yeah. but you're not right. a full-time player. You don't play a whole season. How difficult was it to know that you had you had still so much to give, but the Stars didn't play you all the time? No, I, when I when I got traded, I, when I said earlier about Bobby Carpenter, I think that was the, the situation where you know that was funny because I came, I was with Brian Ingram in the summer, and uh, I think it was July or something. We were together and and uh, we had dinner. I had dinner at Brian's, and and I had just had a meeting earlier with uh, the Capitals, um, and and they had mentioned to me that they're putting moving me back to center, and Brian and Brian Brian Ingram says, "Oh, that's probably the kiss of death." Well, a week later, I got traded <laughs> to Minnesota, um, and and so uh, when I got there, you know, they had Neil Broughton, the other centerman, and I didn't get to play. I was playing the third and fourth line, didn't get to play much, and you know, I I averaged pretty much around 60, 60 70 points playing on a third and fourth line. And if they were to play me more like uh, I, I played in Washington, I know that I would have had. Uh, um, you know, 100 plus or 100 points or whatever, which would have been just fine. So I wasn't disappointed. The, the amount of points that I got and the amount of ice time, I was I was pretty pleased with. I couldn't say any more. And then, uh, you know, in the playoffs, we got we had a strong team. We had to go against. Uh, we pretty much won the Norris Division during during that time, and and we had to go against the Oilers to go to the Stanley Cup Finals. They were just too powerful. There's no way we had, we had a great team. Yeah, we had a great team. We just couldn't. We just couldn't beat them. And you know, it was just that's just the way the way it was. And uh, you know, it's uh, you know things that happen. And you know, there was one playoff series. I think we lost to St. Louis in a, a five game series. And uh, I think Sutter scored in overtime. And I had 15 points. And no, I nobody caught me till the, the Stanley Cup Finals for wow. points. I had let, and I was only the first series, and and so Neil Broughton was checked, and Dino and Scotty Bukes said so. They played myself, Brian Bellows, and Ken Nielsen a lot more. Well, we just exploded uh, in that series, and then uh, so you know I think they realized that, and they even tried to trade me uh, during the time I was there. I I was like the odd man out. I think for seven eight games. Uh, I was like, I didn't get in the lineup. I was practiced at times by myself on the road wow. uh, because I did they want me to get hurt uh, to be involved with the practice because there was a trade happening. Someone got, Neil Broughton got hurt. Lou Nanny puts me in the lineup against New Jersey and I scored two goals and I was first star. Well, guess what? I was in the lineup and I wasn't traded. So, I always had to prove. I always had to, you know, prove with uh, for people that they were wrong and what they said and what they're trying to do, and and uh, that just kind of pushed me. The end for you came when you blocked a Grant Ledyard shot against your old team, the Capitals. Can you take us right. through what happened and then how tough it was for you to get back on the ice after that? Yeah, that was uh, 
uh, I see Grant periodically, and I say, yeah, my knee's okay, but why don't you shoot that puck a little higher? <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, Herb Brooks is the coaching, the late Herb Brooks, and, and um, I was killing a penalty, and I was on top of the circle, and the puck is at the point, uh, and I slid out on the, on, on the ice with my whole body slid, and, and at that time, my shin pad moved away from my knee, and uh, the lower, the left knee, and uh, it hit me flush on the the knee. Ugh. And uh, I just, uh, if it was all higher, I would no problem. Or, uh, uh, but I ended up at the med center. Of course, we had to go upstairs, right? The rink was in the lower lower part of the building, um, and uh, I was fine. It was swollen, bruised up. They took it off. They iced it. Doc looked at it and uh, put my put my equipment back on and had to walk down the steps. Well, I put my right foot down and I went to put my left foot on the the, the next step. Well, I fell right down. Oh, uh, that was yeah. They shattered the kneecap and went right in. They they put it all back together, wired it, pinned it. Um, took about six months, seven months, whatever. Uh, rehabbed everything. Took the pins and wires out. I came back. It wasn't a hundred percent. I went down to the minors to skate. And uh, do a lot of skating, help the players down there. For uh, I think I was down there for about five, six games, whatever. Uh, it just didn't seem right. Got back, called back up, didn't play a lot, and I just said, "Well, you know, if this is gone, uh, do I do I nurse it, do I milk it for another year or two, uh, trying to get a little bit stronger?" And I just at that time said, um, "Okay, it's time to hang them up. Like give someone else a chance." Mm. Mm, yeah, I, you know, at some point, I guess that's the way it goes. And after your playing right. days were over, I think many of our listeners will find this hard to believe. You still had to work. Contracts were not worth millions upon millions of dollars back then. And you had some very interesting jobs and encounters <laughs> after you retired. Play a little word association with me. I'm going to throw a name or an event at you and you tell me about it. Goldie Hawn. Okay. Goldie Hawn. Okay. Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell. Well, you know, Kurt Russell, of course, did the uh, Miracle on Ice. He did uh, the uh, her Brooks coaching, right? Right. Uh, he did a phenomenal job. But I had worked for a company there, and uh, it was a furniture. Well, my buddy, they called it a high-end furniture uh, store. We delivered furniture to, you know, uh, John Oates, uh, um, uh, Goldie Hawn, and Kurt Russell, and their place and all that. And I was... And he hired me as he was a good friend of mine, and he hired me as to run the the warehouse, uh, yeah, deliver the furniture with a couple other workers and all that, and and, and all that. So that's how we met. Uh, uh, she came into the store one day looking for something to buy for curtain. Um, um, so she ended up being there buying this twenty thousand dollars chandelier or whatever <laughs> we had in there. So we had to, we had to go put it in. She comes over to me, she taps, she goes, "Do you know anywhere that?" Uh, uh, I can have a cigarette. And I said, yeah, there's a smoke gun. I was smoking at the time and all that. I said, I'll come out and have one with you. So I said, here, I'll show you where to go. And so uh, so we got talking and all that, and we talked about their son uh, was a goalie and, and uh, all that, and, and ended up going to her house and set, setting up this and meeting them a few times. Uh, she called me. I was her hockey love, uh, <laughs> and, and it was kind of it was kind of cute. She signed a big, huge picture for me, and uh, to my hockey love, Goldie Hawn. And then I met Kurt, and I met Kurt one night, and 
And I sat there for an hour and a half. I had two glasses of wine, and I think I might have said six words. <laughs> All he talked about how great our sport was, how great our sport was, and that's what I wanted to talk to him about. Um, acting and movies and what it was like and all that. I couldn't get there. We had a great time. You know, we had a, we had a great time and uh, uh, and uh, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, awesome. really enjoyed meeting those people. John Oates from the group Hall and Oates. Okay, that was a situation. He lived in uh, he still does in um, uh, Woody Creek, Colorado, and um, uh, he has a farm. We got a farm out in a lot of acres and that. He's got. A lot of machinery, a hundred year old farm machinery, and all this kind of stuff. And so he had came into the store. Uh, Amy, um, his wife, came into the store, and uh, and John, and she was looking for some stuff. And John asked Paul, who's the owner, my friend, did you know have anybody that works here that can help me out move some some farm machinery? Uh, and Paul looks right over to me and he says, Dennis, you're single, you're 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 free at times. Why don't you go and help him? I, he introduced me to John Oates, and I was kind of, oh, boy, this is great, man. <laughs> so I said, I'd do it, and I'd do it. So I went over there one day, and we, we set up a date, and uh, it was a Saturday, and went over there and moved home once a bunch of farm machinery. He says, uh, do you know much about landscaping and all that? I got a couple apple trees that need to be dyed. I need to replant them. Can you do that? I said, oh, no problem, no problem. So I did that, and he uh, gave me a check, and then he goes, uh, is this okay? And I says, yeah, that's fine, no problem, you know. And and so he calls Paul, and Paul says, and he calls Paul and says, could Dennis do more work over here? And Paul says, well, I'll check with Dennis, and you guys team up. So I ended up teaming up with them. He had, he had fired his, he had two Mexican workers. He fired them because they weren't doing a good enough job. And he hired me to go over there and cut his grass, uh, uh, working as they had uh, all the dead stuff, we had color, landscape, and pull out the weeds, everything. And uh, he says, "You do an amazing job for you." I would go over after work for three hours, or or in the weekend, I'd go and spend eight hours or nine hours. And I did it in rain at times, and he he was he was really impressed by it. I was there for about a year and a half, and then I decided to move back home. When I told him I was coming back home. He wasn't too, a little too, too happy about it because then he had to go find someone else to do the work, and I'm sure he did. But uh, um, it was kind of a quick decision to, to come back home, be close to my dad, and all that. Um, so, but that's how that that that's how that all ended up. And I really uh, great man. I, I and I tried to talk to music with him, and and he he started getting into hockey and and all that. And and he, and I did get my my daughter. It was his singing and all that, and he did listen to a, a bunch of her songs, which they really don't because they could, uh, you know, they could steal the words or steal the songs. But he would, he said he'd do it for me, and all that. So um, that was kind of nice, yeah. That's yeah. awesome. One last, uh, one last word association for you. Being okay. a deckhand aboard a ship that serviced oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> you like the first chapter, right? Okay. <laughs> it was great. Um, I guess, you know, you can really, uh, I was in Louisiana. I, I did some coaching down there and then, uh, things didn't work out. And, uh, I ended up, uh, uh, a friend, uh, asked me, they, they, uh, he was looking for people to work on the cruise ship that services oil rigs. And it was, the company was Devon Energy, all their rigs out in the Gulf. 
And so I had to go do training and everything and uh, get the certifications and all that kind of stuff. And I said, why not? Let's go see. I wasn't doing anything. And so I, I would go on, on for a week, uh, off for a week, on for a week. And uh, we serviced the rigs, and there was two captains and two deckhands. And, and uh, uh, I became a real good cook, uh, cleaned the boat. I even ended up uh, uh, piloting the, the, the boat in a storm that uh, was unbelievable. The 160-foot uh, cruise ship was loaded, loaded with these 5,000, 10,000, uh, uh, you know, uh, crates that were going to be uh, hoisted up from uh, uh, the, uh, the rigs. Uh, you know, they'd send down the shackles, and I, I said, as a deckhand, have to get on top of these things, and you had, like, not even six, eight inches to get between them all, get on top unloosen the shackles with a storm even, put it back in there, tie them up, and then put your finger up, uh, your hand up to, to raise it up. Sometimes they couldn't see you, and they'd pull, start pulling. You're on top of it, and you had to jump off. So it was, it was scary. Uh, at that time, pilot, where I said, uh, you know, it was, all, it was average about nine hours to get out uh, to the rigs, right? Then you go hit a bunch of them and then come in. But... Uh, that time of the storm was like that. I was, we were right on top. That's where the uh, the cabin was, and and um, um, and uh, Captain goes, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little nap here now. You're in charge of the boat." I go, "I go, well, what what am I supposed to do?" Uh, exactly. I mean, he goes, "Just it's all piloted, right? So just watch." But the main thing is watch for those big white bars. I go, "Why?" He says, "Those are um, the um, the oil rig. They're oil tankers." Here's oil tankers out there. And I said, you just got to watch for them. And I said, okay, thanks. And then a storm comes, and that waves are coming right over top of me. The boat's going from one side to another. And I said, hey, hey Captain, you going to wake up and take over? He said, no, you'll be, you'll be no problem. You got to take care. I'm going back to bed for another hour. And that's what happened. So it was, that's how I got. I, I started out with that chapter because, you know, you, you read other autobiographies and all that, and they just start off with their – and I wanted to do it just like James Patterson books were. You know, I, I read so many of them. I like the short chapters. I'm 60 years old, uh, 60 goal score, and 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 60 chapters. So that's how we did it. And uh, so far, things of uh, the the reviews I've got have been great. And I thank you for your your uh, nice kind words too. So uh, yeah, go out a- and get it. Amazon Amazon.ca and. Uh, uh, dot com and all that. Uh, and just look under my name and uh, on the books and go ahead and get it. Yeah, it's an awesome it's book. A great read. Hey, it is a great Thank read. You. you know, through through all yeah. of that, through all of the great events you experienced as a hockey player, life was tough after you retired, almost to the point where you know you, you came within feet right. of ending it all. What happened? How close did you come to calling it quits? I had I I was living in Aspen, Colorado, and. Uh, I was single, and uh, things were, uh, you know, things were struggling. I had a job, and, you know, I was meeting great people and all that, but I just, you know, I got, you know, the fear of failure was was, was kind of really entering. You know, I was a, a successful occupier and still didn't have exactly what I wanted as an occupier, but, you know, um, uh, you know, and I, and I got in different jobs and stuff like that, and uh, and it was it was a struggle, and, and I just kind of, and I got into the alcohol. I got into that. Uh, wasn't a um, uh, we call it drugs, but I want any kind of that. It was just alcohol. And I just got, you know, one night. I, you know, I just like, you know, here it is. 
I got in my car. I had, I had too much to drink, and uh, I decided this. I'm going to Vegas. I'm driving to Vegas, which I eventually ended up working there. But uh, I was driving to Vegas, and and that was it. On the way there, I was calling my kids. I was calling my friends, and I'm not a, I'm not ashamed to talk about it now or anything. I mean, it 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 changed my whole life. And and I was driving. I got to the Grand Canyon, Utah. There, I was tired. I was driving real slow. I'd got two hands in that wheel and everything, and I wasn't even, I wasn't scared of anything. I was, I was just going. It was late at night and, and, and I was tired. I pulled over the side of the road, a little dirt road, just a little one. And, and I, I fell asleep. Well, I got out of the sunshine woke me up in the morning, right? I got out of my car on the driver's side, I walked around and within five feet was the cliff, the Grand Canyon. Wow. And I just, I think I just froze or freaked or whatever. And I go, what am I doing? I got in my car, turned around, went back to Aspen, where I was living. And as a matter of fact, the basement of uh, Blake Hall's house, good friend of mine. And um, I went in and had a shower. Uh, a knock on the door came. The uh, It was police. And I had my towel around me, just come out of the shower. And, and uh, Blake's wife was... Uh, uh, Dana said, Dennis, uh, there's someone at the door for you, and it's the police. And and uh, and police goes, are you Dennis Merck? And I go, yeah. Are you okay? He says, yeah, I just got out of the shower, and I'm going to work. He said, we've had a lot of people call us. We've been looking for you. We just want to make sure you're okay. Mm. And that's it. I went to work. Changed my whole life. Wow. I got to really realize, and you know, I have to thank my, my children. The book's dedicated to, of course, my mom and dad, but mainly my children, uh, mainly my daughter. Uh, my, my, my son, John, Sarah, and Jaylee, but mainly Sarah, Sarah became my uh, closest friend. And, uh, sorry, I get a little teary right now, but, uh, she, uh, she pretty much saved me. We talked pretty much every other day. Wow. Dennis, it would have been a tragic uh, loss. I'm, I'm so glad you didn't take that final, that final step. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was so close. It was so close. And sometimes, yeah, you know, and you read other books, you hear other stories of people, you got to hit bottom, and uh, and sometimes you 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 realize uh, okay you, you, there's a lot in life to live for. There's a lot of yeah. great things, a lot of love, and I had I'm a grandfather. I got two grandkids, and you know, so it's uh, something you have to really challenge, and and uh, that's what happened, and and uh, it's turned, and it's been uh, it's been I'm glad it didn't happen, and uh, and things are great now. I'm in a great relationship with a woman now here in Toronto for a year, and, and things are just great here in Toronto. So uh, I'm having fun. I'm skating. I'm playing. Uh, I had a scare uh, in January. I had open heart surgery. I have four valves with 90% block. Wow. I have a new heart. I have a new uh, a new life. I've got 20-plus years. I'm stronger and faster and, and uh, hungrier and all that. So it's, uh, it's just, uh, thank God, uh, um, someone was looking after me when I made that little walk out of my car and, and uh, took that five five feet step and looked at the Grand Canyon and someone told me that it was it was time to yeah you know you got a lot to live for. Yeah, you 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 really do. Uh, amazing story. Hey, I don't want to spoil Thank everything you. that's in your book. Meeting a president, the no, All Star okay. Game, the fun you had with your teammates, a lot of great stuff for fans of Dennis Marook and Sports Forgotten Heroes. And fans of hockey, it's really a great read. I love the short, quick chapters. Um, 
the 60 chapters, it's really interesting. You just said 60 goals, 60 chapters. How did that idea come about? Why 60 chapters? Is it because of the 60 goals? How did that come about? Well, you know, it was kind of like, as I said earlier, I read uh, my favorite author is James Patterson. So I read uh, pretty much every one of his books. And, uh, and they're all short chapters. Maybe that's why maybe that's why I read three years books because uh, I, I sometimes put a pick up a book and I read it's got you know fifty sixty pages I I think it takes me a year to read that book but uh, for a chapter but I mean it's uh, uh, but this book his books have always and I and when I came about when I met with Ken Reed I said Ken if, if we're gonna do this and and uh, and I'm gonna call it a book it's gotta be like James Patterson books. It's got to be kind of the whirlwind type stories. It can't be where you just start out, there's going to be positives, negatives, but it can't start out where I just, because I've read other autobiographies and I, and I can't start out with starting playing hockey at eight years old in Toronto and house late. And then went to, well, I was 10 years old and I played for Northern Toronto. It ain't going to be that way. It's got to be where someone's going to read it and not put it down. This is the way it's going to be. And you go read a James Patterson book, and you'll see exactly what I mean. And and then I just kind of said, well, let's do, because I'm 60 years old, and and I thought it was going to be out when I did turn 60, but it took about two years. And I'll be 62 in, in November, but uh, I'm still 61. So uh, it worked out good. And I said, let's do 60, 60 goals in 60 chapters. He goes, that's a great idea. That's and awesome. So that's all it was. It wasn't uh, talked about it. I just said, let's do it. And, and, and I, when it got finished, I can like, this is great. You know, this is, uh, this is wonderful. And uh, my son read it. Uh, I think he was the first one to read the book uh, and he'd be my best critic. And he said, it's great, dad. Um, uh, my daughter read it. She loved it. Um, girlfriend read it and she didn't know a lot about hockey so it was really hard for her to understand certain things about the hockey but uh, she said it was a great read and everybody that I've talked to that's read it said it's outstanding, it's good, it's great it's great, to, you don't want to put it down you want to keep reading and yeah you went through some ups and downs and stuff like that and thank God you're here and, and, and all that but uh, uh, you know, I owe a lot to ECW the publishing company has they, they put a great job, the cover's good the uh, the picture's good. Uh, Ken Reed, of course, uh, who's wrote a couple books and a uh, Canadian bestseller. He did a wonderful job. And uh, and that's what it is. And uh, the great forward by Marcel Dion is awesome. The great co- comments by all my, my great, the players I've played with, the, my players I've played against, my peers, you know, Phil Esposito, uh, you know, Wendell Clark, uh, Dennis Savard, Mike Madonna, Mike Gardner. I'll go down the list of guys and all the great compliments and things they said about me. And, you know, uh, uh, I'll never forget that. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really a great read. It is a book that you don't want to put down. And let me ask you this, besides wanting fans to have fun reading the book, is there any other message you want them to have to come away with after reading it? Well, yeah, I think the message is that um, you, you have to really, you know, do you have to hit rock bottom? No. I think that you, you know, as a, as an athlete, you know, prepare yourself. Um, your your seasons, your 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 years of, of life in the, as a, as an athlete, whether it's you know football, baseball, hockey, uh, basketball, you, you know, you prepare yourself for your your post career. You know, because I did not. I thought doors were going to be open for me. They did not. 
I struggled and had a hard time, and that's probably why I went through some real rough times and and said, oh, I'm a failure. I'm, you know, things just didn't work out in my life. I want to go. But you got to really realize and respect the fact of what you have and what you did um, uh, as an athlete. You made it to the the big time. You made it to the big show. Uh, you got to be proud of that. You got to be proud that you had children. You got to be proud. Uh, your grandkids. You got to be. You know, people do love and respect you. Yeah, and we don't all have uh, great things in life. And but you have to. You're here. We're material things. We are. We we are who we are. And and we're not all the same. And I think that's the message that you got to go. Enjoy life. Have a passion. Enjoy life. And and things will be a lot happier for you. I didn't have all that. And, and, and I feel that that's kind of the message I, I give to people. That's awesome. Dennis, I have one last question for you. It's a question I've always yeah. wanted to ask of a professional athlete. I'm quite sure you had a favorite team to watch when you were growing up, and I'm going to guess it was the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> what was it like well, playing against them the first time you faced them? Was there extra motivation? And after you retired from the game, did they once again become your favorite team? How does that work for a professional athlete? Well, uh, you know, of course, growing up in Toronto as a kid, we all want to play for Toronto Maple Leafs. Even when they make it to the pro and you're not, you don't get drafted by them. Or uh, As I said earlier, I said, I've, I've, I've tried to get traded, and Lou Nanny would not trade me uh, because it was a Norris division. And I, I really wanted to play my last few years in Toronto in front of my friends and family, but it never happened. Um, do I cheer for them? Yes, I do. I always have to. Even when I turn pro, I cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, from here, I'm, uh, you know, I grew up as a kid. Uh, and, and, you know, the teams that, that I played with, of course, the Dallas Stars I cheer for, the Washington Capitals I cheer for, um, um, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs. But my favorite team growing up, um, my favorite player that I used to watch because we practiced at Maple Leaf Gardens as a kid with the Marlies, all pro teams come in, was Bobby Hall. Wow. I, I used to like watching Bobby Hall take the shots, and I'd sit behind the net and, and their practice and watch their practice because we had to practice before the, the NHL teams who practiced after them at Maple Leaf Gardens. So I got the chance to take the subway all the way to Maple Leaf Gardens go there. But, you know, the, the player like that, but there's a player that, that I got a forward in here that, that I idolized because of our size and our, our strength. And he's kind of the same. He never won a Stanley Cup. And that guy is a phenomenal man, uh, great player, uh, Marcel Dion. Um, uh, Triple he, crown he, line uh, with uh, Charlie Simmer and Dave Taylor. Yeah, Dave Taylor, awesome, awesome guy. Um, I've done a lot of different events over the years with him, and, and I've always told him, you know, you know, you, you, you know, how did you do it? And, I mean, you look at his numbers. It's unbelievable his numbers and the team. Look at the team he played on. Yeah. Not a strong team. Yeah. Not a very strong team. And you know, of course, with the Canada Cup '72 there, but just a phenomenal player. And and if you think about it, he's it's kind of the same. Uh, it's kind of story a little bit about not playing on strong teams and not winning a Stanley Cup. But he was a player that I really looked up to because of his smaller statue. Uh, he was a lot stockier than I was, but uh, was productive, was a great player. And, and uh, so there, there's there's my answer. If you need one uh, uh, as a child, Bobby Hall slaps up. But Marcel Dion was a player that I really, uh, really looked up to as, as, as uh, the, the small players. 
Thank you for sharing that, Dennis. Thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. This has been a great thrill, and I wish you you. great luck with your book. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate the kind words, too. For his career, Dennis Marouk lit the lamp 356 times, and he added 522 assists. Of course, the highlight was his incredible 60-goal season for the Capitals in the 1980-81 campaign. But it's crazy to think, especially back then, that you could score 60 goals and have it overshadowed. But that's what happened. And that's a large part of the Dennis Marouk story. Perhaps had the trade to the New York Rangers or his wish of being traded to his hometown Toronto Maple Leafs occurred, the name Dennis Marouk might be much better known than it is today. As you're heading out over the next couple of weeks and you're looking for a great gift, I'm telling you, Dennis's book, Dennis Marouk, the unforgettable story of hockey's forgotten 60-goal man, it would make for a great gift for any sports fan. It's an easy read, it's fun, and it tells the story of a guy who made it from small-town Canada to hockey's biggest stage, the National Hockey League. It's available at bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you shop for books. It's a great gift for the holidays. It's just a great read. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, back to the NBA and one of its forgotten heroes, Ernie DiGregorio. Thanks again to today's special guest, NHL Star Center Dennis Moreau. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.